Are you ready to move your career forward? Make your comeback with Purdue Global and get college credit for your work, school, life, or military experiences. With these credits, you may have already completed up to 75% of your undergraduate degree. You've worked hard to get where you are. It's time to get the recognition you deserve and earn a degree you'll be proud of, one that employers will trust and respect. When you take the next step in your life and career, make it count with Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback at purdueglobal.edu. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with cheap Caribbean vacations means you have more freedom. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas, and more, cheap Caribbean vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget beach finder or find a featured all-inclusive package to reu hotels and resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Conair is spreading love and celebrating women, not just on International Women's Day, but every day with Conair Girlbomb. Girlbomb is their new line of powerful hair removal tools made just for us. Yeah. Whether it's the silky smooth skin or the empowering confidence boost you get, Conair Girlbomb is here to amp up those positive vibes with some self-care. So to all the beautiful women out there, keep shining, keep being you. And treat yourself to some Conair Girl Bomb magic. You deserve it. Available at Walgreens. Membership fees apply after free trial. Cancel anytime. Can I be real with you for a second? That goal you have to exercise and eat better? You really can do it. But nobody is going to do it for you. Nobody is going to push you out of bed to work out. Nobody is going to make you eat better. But here's the thing. Nobody has to. Because you can do it if you have the right tools and a community that cares about helping you get results. And that's us, Beachbody. Two and a half million people, each doing the Beachbody program that fits our own goals. Over 80 to choose from. Some that take just 20 minutes a day. Nutrition plans that teach you how to eat healthy and still enjoy food. What we all have in common is we know it's not easy. So we help each other. It's as convenient as your TV or laptop, but you need to decide that you're worth it. That's why I'm inviting you to try our amazing Beachbody fitness and nutrition programs. Let us help you succeed. Here's how. Go to Beachbody.com to claim your free membership and start feeling great. You're listening to part three of Unexplained Season 5, Episode 3, Endgame. As well as a two-way radio, Ozzy Caban gave Cindy a panic button, which she made a habit of carrying with her wherever she went. The button set off an alarm in Caban's office, which would then in turn alert Caban to notify the police that she was in trouble. In October 1988, Cindy triggered the alarm. When police arrived at her home minutes later, they found her car parked up in the garage, with Cindy unconscious in the driver's seat, partially naked from the waist down, with her legs dangling out of the open door. Duct tape had been stuck over her mouth, and yet another pair of black nylon stockings had been tied around her neck. Her hands had also been tied behind her back. By the time she made it to hospital, Cindy was in a coma. When she finally woke up, all she seemed to remember of the incident was returning home in the car that afternoon, 
and then being attacked by one or two men just as she was about to get out of it. Once again, police made a thorough search of the crime scene and once again, they found nothing to suggest that anyone else had been involved in the apparent attack. By the spring of 1989, Cindy had triggered her panic alarm four more times. She also received another intimidating note, this time left on her car windscreen and discovered by a security guard at Richmond Hospital, where she worked. It read simply, Soon, Cindy. One afternoon in May 1989, Cindy met with her friend and colleague Anne in the canteen at the hospital where they worked. Looking back on the meeting, Anne recalled that Cindy was in a buoyant mood and eagerly awaiting the five days' leave she had coming up. On Thursday, May 25th, Cindy spoke with another good friend, Marion Christensen, on the phone. Marion, who often made the effort to check in with Cindy to make sure she was doing okay, had called to tell Cindy that she was planning a trip to Vancouver Island in the next few days. She hoped that they might be able to see each other. On the call... Cindy told Marion about her fears that things were beginning to escalate again after months without incident, and that she'd sometimes felt too scared to even leave the house. In spite of this, however, overall, she'd seemed happy and was looking forward to attending her friend's son's eighth birthday party that weekend. It was shortly after that call that Cindy drove out to Blundell Shopping Centre on Blundell Road to get some advice about what skincare products she could use to combat a problem that had recently flared up on her face. After that, she headed back to work to collect her paycheck. Arriving a little early, she met her friend Diane for a quick coffee. Diane remembered the moment well, especially how good Cindy looked after her visit to the mall, which she complimented her on. The pair spoke a bit about the recent break-ins at Cindy's house, and how Cindy was otherwise in good spirits. However, she also remembered Cindy being worried that things might be too quiet, as if something terrible was about to happen. The pair arranged to have dinner the following evening before saying their goodbyes. Cindy picked up her paycheck shortly after. Her colleague Tammy, who handed it to her, later remembered thinking it was the happiest she'd seen Cindy in a while. Soon after, at the home of Cindy's friends, Agnes and Tom Woodcock, Agnes received a call from Cindy. She was back at the Blundell Centre, hoping to find a present for her friend's son's upcoming birthday. The pair spoke for a short time, making arrangements to meet at Cindy's apartment later that evening to play bridge and stay the night. It was the last time Agnes would ever speak to her friend. As they had arranged, the Woodcocks arrived at Cindy's home on Claysmith Road at 10pm. Normally, Agnes liked to beep the horn when they drove up to let Cindy know they'd arrived. Cindy would always appear at the window to wave hello. That night, however, she never appeared. As Agnes and Tom drew up to the door, they noticed too that Cindy's blue Chevrolet Citation wasn't in the drive. Having got no response from knocking on the door, they tried Cindy's neighbour, but he hadn't seen her since she headed off to the shopping mall six hours earlier. Agnes and Tom returned to their car and waited. 
When they'd spoken on the phone earlier, Cindy said she'd be home before dark and it wasn't like her to be late. After 20 minutes, the couple decided to head home and call the police, but first drive to the Blundell Centre, just in case she might still be there. The centre had long since closed when the Woodcocks pulled up into the parking lot, which they found completely empty, except for one car, parked up in the middle of it. Cindy's Chevrolet. Pulling up to it, Agnes left the headlights on as she and Tom went over to check it out. Inside they spotted some bags of groceries on the front seat, but no sign of Cindy. Now deeply concerned, the Woodcocks drove straight to the nearest police station, arriving around 11pm. Heading straight to the front desk, they reported to the staffer on duty that Cindy had seemingly disappeared. However, since it hadn't been 24 hours, the officer told them to go away and come back the following day. Recently, a constable named Jerry Anderson had taken on Cindy's file and had told her or her friends to contact him if ever anything suspicious occurred. Since Anderson wasn't working that night, there was nothing the staffer would do for Agnes and Tom, not even allow them to speak to another officer to explain the situation. Not taking no for an answer, the couple refused to leave the station until finally another officer appeared. Mercifully, after the Woodcocks explained everything to them, they dispatched a patrol car immediately to the Blundell Centre. At 12.30am, Constable Jerry Anderson had just got into bed when the station rang to inform him that Cindy's car had been found seemingly abandoned. But more than that, the attending officer had also found blood on the door and Cindy's bank and ID card scattered underneath it. Anderson got dressed and headed straight to the police station. Two weeks prior to her disappearance, Cindy had written a letter to Constable Anderson's department bemoaning the lack of trust she'd felt in most of her dealings with the police. Constable Anderson, who she described as the only officer she could trust and feel comfortable with, was the exception. Later that night, after briefing his staff on the situation, Anderson called Cindy's parents to let them know she was missing. As forensics dusted the car for prints, two Mounties were sent to search Cindy's house for clues. Inside, they found a clean and well-looked-after home. A deck of playing cards and a score pad were set up on the table in preparation for the card game that Cindy had been due to play with Agnes and Tom. An hour later, Cindy's car was being loaded onto the back of a truck and taken to the police impound lot to be examined the following day. Aside from the smear of blood on the door, forensics had found nothing else of note on the outside of the vehicle. Next, Constable Anderson sent two officers to visit Cindy's ex-husband, Dr Roy Makepeace. Rosemary Kent, a woman who lives on the edge of the infamous Black Hills Forest, needs your help to find her missing son. But to find him, you must investigate the mysterious forest yourself. Will you face down the horror of the Blair Witch and those who serve her? Blair Witch is the new horror subscription game brought to you by Hunt a Killer in partnership with Lionsgate. A fully immersive experience in the Blair Witch universe delivered straight to your door and it's scary as hell. With a full season comprising of six boxes or episodes, 
Each box will have you sifting through cryptic documents, discovering audio recordings, and solving some disturbing puzzles. Whether you're social distancing or struggling to find somewhere fun to go out for the night, this is the perfect game to play at home with a small group of friends, or even online via video calls, picking through the clues together under candlelight from the comfort of your own home. Right now, just for listeners of Unexplained, you can go to hunterkiller.com slash bwunexplained and use your promo code bwunexplained at checkout for 20% off your first box. Head to hunterkiller.com slash bwunexplained for 20% off and to show support for the podcast. Once again, that's hunterkiller.com slash bwunexplained. Will you survive the curse of the Blair Witch? Although police had yet to find a solid reason to suspect that Makepeace had anything to do with all that Cindy had supposedly been experiencing, they also hadn't been able to rule it out. It had just gone 3am when Constables Bowl and Strand arrived at the apartment block where he lived, near Kitsilano Beach. Spotting another resident entering the building, the two Mounties took the opportunity to let themselves in and head up to Makepeace's apartment. When they tried to speak to Makepeace, however, the doctor refused to let them in. Instead, he phoned the building manager, who arrived soon after, to see what all the fuss was about. Only after the officers had shown their ID to the manager did Makepeace finally grant them access to his flat. Appearing on edge, Makepeace told the Mounties to keep their distance and to go into the living room where he could see them better. The officers cautiously complied, casting their eyes over the apartment as they went. Makepeace then went on to explain that his nervousness was to do with a series of strange things that had happened recently in the area that had left him unsure of who to trust. He'd even been keeping a gun in the apartment, he told them, for his own protection, and even pulled it out to show them. When asked to account for his recent whereabouts in the last 24 hours, Makepeace explained that he'd cycled to Richmond and then headed back to Vancouver for dinner with a friend. He then spent the evening helping to install a stereo system at his friend's house before returning to his apartment at midnight. His friend would later confirm this. So you were in Richmond yesterday afternoon, said Constable Bowl. Why, asked Makepeace, what's going on? The officers then explained that Cindy's car had been found at the Blundell shopping centre but there was no sign of Cindy. Makepeace stood, shaking his head. My God, she's dead. She's dead, he said. Collecting himself, Makepeace told the officers that he had something they might want to listen to. Two messages he'd received on his answering machine the previous October. It was hard to say which was the more strange. One, delivered in a raspy voice, said, More smack, more downers, Another grand after we waste. No more deal. And the other was this one. Makepeace thought the voice had said Sunday, dead meat soon, since the Sunday before he got the message he'd seen two characters who seemed out of place to him hanging outside his apartment block. The men walked away when they noticed that Makepeace was eyeing them from his car on the other side of the road. 
The doctor wondered if they'd been the same men, perhaps, that attacked Cindy, looking to hurt him too. When he played the message to a friend, however, they realised the voice wasn't saying Sunday, dead meat soon, but Cindy, dead meat soon. Makepeace said he hadn't told the police about the takes before, because he'd grown distrustful of them after all the years of being considered a suspect in the attacks on his ex-wife. The morning after Cindy's disappearance, her sister Melanie received a letter from Cindy in the post. It read, This is just a wee note on this beautiful paper to say hi. Hope all is well with you, and thanks for the interesting mail you've sent in the last while. I've been busy in the garden whenever I can, getting it slowly in shape. We've had some really nice weather lately. I'm still getting harassed from time to time by someone trying to break in here, but I think we've come up with a solution if it doesn't cost too much. Gord is going to wire in a sensor for me, so hopefully we'll know when someone enters the backyard and we can quietly call the police while he's busy doing his thing. I'm really hopeful we might actually catch him soon. Wouldn't that be wonderful? I could actually start living a normal life again. I've almost forgotten what that feels like. The police have been pretty useless, so it would be wonderful to hand him over on a silver platter. Well, I must bathe and get ready for Marion to pick me up. Hope to hear from you soon. By the afternoon, an extensive search by Richmond police, including searching the shoreline and interviewing anyone within a half-block radius of the Blundell Centre, had turned up nothing. Shortly after 5pm, Constable Anderson arrived at the police compound to examine Cindy's car. Cindy's black purse was found on the front passenger seat between two brown paper bags of groceries, with another two bags of groceries on the floor. On the back seat, they found two Sears bags with the croquet set and some wrapping paper, the gift Cindy had bought for her friend's son. A Bank of Montreal deposit slip revealed that she deposited her paycheck at the centre at 7.58pm, the last of her known whereabouts. Curiously, police also found a pad of paper in the glove compartment with the words Small Silver and KDV 784 written on it, as if Cindy had at some point noted down a suspicious vehicle she'd seen. The plate was checked against all known plates in British Columbia, but again nothing turned up. The handheld alarm that Ozzy Caban had given her, which she made sure to take with her wherever she went, was also found in the glove box. A few days after Cindy's body was found, Richard Johnston, a life insurance agent who'd sold Cindy a policy recently, called Constable Anderson to let him know that a man had contacted his office requesting details about the policy, claiming to be Cindy's father. He denied all knowledge of the call. Around the same time, the words some bitch died here were graffitied onto a fuel tank beside the house where Cindy's body was found. Presumably the same person had also painted a crude outline of a body in orange paint on the ground. As Cindy's death began to hit the news, so too did stories begin to emerge about the bizarre circumstances leading up to her disappearance. With Cindy's father Otto acting as the family spokesperson, it was often up to him to outline to the press 
the extent of the almost seven years of harassment and attacks that Cindy had apparently suffered in the lead-up to her death, while decrying the police's inability to find a perpetrator. As a result, the police were inundated with tips and suggestions by members of the public as to what might have happened, but no genuine leads came out of it. Ozzie Caban, who was on holiday at the time, learned of Cindy's death the day after her body was found. After getting the first flight home, he went straight to the morgue to inspect the body for himself. After learning that it had been found on its right-hand side, he was surprised to find blotching and signs of lividity, the pooling of blood on the left-hand side. Caban also thought it strange that the skin was so dry, considering the shady and damp area where the body had been found, nor did it seem to have been much damaged by other animals. All of which suggested that perhaps Cindy had died elsewhere and the body taken to the place it was found later on. On June 12th, 1989, on what would have been Cindy's 45th birthday, friends and family gathered at her apartment to mourn her death. At her funeral two days later, the police used hidden cameras to record the faces and license plate numbers of all who attended. Dr. Roy Makepeace was a notable absentee. Since it had never been a particularly well-kept secret, it wasn't long before the press got wind of what many in the police force really felt about Cindy's death. Within days, articles were already circulating questioning both Cindy's mental health and the veracity of all those harassment claims of which there were almost a hundred in total. Cindy's family were incensed by the speculation. Twenty days after the body was found, despite being discovered with a stocking around her neck, toxicology results revealed that Cindy had most likely died from an overdose of the sedative fluorazepam. Dangerous levels of one other sedative and morphine were also present. With so many unanswered questions... The inquest into Cindy's death began in April the following year and involved 80 witnesses as well as a number of expert testimonies. Some psychiatrists argued that perhaps Cindy had been suffering from some kind of multiple personality disorder, while others disputed this possibility. This diagnosis, now referred to as dissociative identity disorder, remains a deeply controversial and much contested one though some argued that Cindy couldn't possibly have tied her own hands and feet behind her back in the manner in which her body was found. A knot specialist was asked to attempt it themselves for the inquest. They found they were able to achieve something similar in just under 15 minutes. Enough time, perhaps, for Cindy to drug herself and then make it to where her body was eventually found. Ozzie Caban, for one, didn't believe that Cindy would have been able to stage that kind of death on her own. Detective Boya Smythe had also remained convinced throughout that Cindy had been the victim of a terrifying harassment campaign. When asked at the inquest to point to who he thought was responsible, he pointed to Dr Roy Makepeace. After 30 days, the inquest was brought to an end on May 25th, 1990, a year to the day that Cindy died. In the end, the jury were unable to rule whether the death was an accident, a murder or suicide. Catherine Kinahan, who summed up at the inquest, said, The Vancouver Police Department's position 
is that Cindy's death was suicide or accident. The proper verdict is the so-called open-ended verdict. It would be pointless to reopen the investigation at this stage. It's not going to solve the case. There is no more evidence to be found. The Vancouver Sun reporter, Neil Hall, whose 1991 book, The Deaths of Cindy, provides extensive coverage of the case, called it the most baffling case that he'd ever come across. Can this be, he asked, can someone have done this to themselves? Could someone out there still not have been caught? If you enjoy Unexplained and would like to help supporters, you can now do so via Patreon. To receive access to ad-free episodes, discount on merchandise, as well as brand new video and audio content exclusive to Patreon members, just go to patreon.com forward slash unexplained pod to sign up. Or if you'd like to make a one-time donation, you can go to unexplainedpodcast.com forward slash support. All donations, no matter how large or small, are greatly appreciated. Unexplained the book and audiobook, featuring 10 stories that have never before been covered on the show, is now available to buy worldwide. You can purchase through Amazon, Barnes & Noble and Waterstones, among other bookstores. All elements of Unexplained, including the show's music, are produced by me, Richard McLean-Smith. Please subscribe and rate the show wherever you listen to podcasts, and feel free to get in touch with any thoughts or ideas regarding the stories you've heard on the show. Perhaps you have an explanation of your own you'd like to share. You can reach us online at unexplainedpodcast.com or Twitter at unexplainedpod and Facebook at facebook.com forward slash unexplainedpodcast. Does money stress you out? Let FACET flip your financial chaos into clarity. Finding FACET immediately put us at ease. FACET's innovative approach to financial planning ensures your money works as hard as you do, enabling members to experience the joys of having your finances in order. That makes us FACET for life now, I guess. (laughs) Visit FACET.com, F-A-C-E-T.com to learn more. This ad is sponsored by FACET. FACET Wealth is an SEC-registered investment advisor. This is not an offer to buy or sell securities, nor is it investment, legal, or tax advice. These testimonials are from current FACET members who are not compensated. All opinions are their own and not a guarantee of a similar outcome. With the best all-inclusive vacation deals to Mexico and the Caribbean, booking your getaway with Cheap Caribbean Vacations means you have more freedom to do your deal. Whether you want to enjoy snorkeling, endless margaritas and more, or simply soak up the sun and sand in a tropical paradise, Cheap Caribbean Vacations has your deal for that. Plan and book the exact getaway you want at exactly the right price for you by using our exclusive budget Beach Finder. Or find a featured all-inclusive package to Ibera Star Hotels and Resorts and do your deal at CheapCaribbean.com. Introducing the Lisa Chill Collection, your answer to hot nights. These mattresses beat the heat with ultra-cool covers, whisking away heat for the perfect sleep temperature. Save up to $460 on chill mattresses and get two free pillows when you shop now. iHeart listeners can save an extra $50 off by visiting lisa.com forward slash iHeart. That's l-e-e-s-a dot com slash iHeart. Exclusions apply. See lisa.com for more details.